Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, confess your sins to God, simply, which means to simply identify or acknowledge, to admit our sins to God the Father. He instantly forgives us, cleanses us from all unrighteousness that's known and unknown and forgotten sins, so that we are restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and can resume our spiritual advance. So let's uh, bow our heads and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to gather together each and every week to study your word. We thank you that you have given us your word and you have also given us the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand these things. Holy Spirit who stores these things in our soul and then uh, reminds us of them so that we can apply these principles as we go throughout our life. Father, we thank you that you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have provided us with every uh, possible spiritual asset that we might be able to uh, live a life that glorifies you. Father, we thank you for the nation in which we live and what a tremendous blessing and privilege that is. We thank you for the freedoms that we have that were purchased on the battlefields by our forefathers. Father, we pray that you would continue to Uh, Provide us with these freedoms, especially that the gospel may go forth through missionaries to different uh, uh, parts of the world. Father, we pray that you would keep our borders secure in these times of uh, ongoing threats in the midst of this war on terror, that you would give our president, give other leaders, both in the military and civilian life, that you would give them wisdom and skill. Those who are on the front lines and security details, pray that you would give them wisdom and sensitivity to uh, spot problems and errors, spot uh, inconsistencies, that you would use them to continue to protect us and protect our borders. Now, Father, we pray today as we study your word that you would uh, challenge us with these things, that we might be able to concentrate and focus on your word and that we might realize that nothing in life is more important than knowing your word, applying it consistently in our life, and growing to spiritual maturity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 16. 
5 to 11. Now, we're having a slight problem with the clock in the back. The battery's about dead. And, oh, we're putting a new battery in. All right. Now we'll probably go fast, so we'll have a short class. I was going to warn you that as slow as it was getting, we would probably be here for two hours. But looks like the problem's getting solved. This last week, just to report for you on what where I was, I, last Sunday I went down to uh, Dallas for the Conservative Theological Society. Now, the Conservative Theological Society is an organization that was started by Tyndale Seminary in Fort Worth, uh, I think around eight or nine years ago. And it is technically an organization for our meeting for pastors, theologians, seminary students, professors to join. And this is one of those professional type organizations that meets on an annual basis. And part of its purpose is to bring in uh, men who are very knowledgeable in specific areas of study. And you'll usually have one key speaker who might speak for three or four sessions on uh, technical topics. And then maybe some auxiliary papers just usually dealing with different subjects. Uh, whatever it may be that someone wants to present a paper on. The last two years, or maybe three, uh, it's been more oriented to a particular topic each, each year. This year the topic was creation and evolution, a topic not unfamiliar to us since we've been studying the first 11 chapters of Genesis for the past uh, year and a half. But the key speakers... Uh, were Dr. John Morris, whom you have met via video, and uh, Charlie Clough, whom you have met in person. And uh, I also had a couple of sessions. Tommy Ice had a session, and uh, Mike Stallard, who's professor of theology at uh, Bible Baptist Seminary over at, in uh, Pennsylvania, had a couple of sessions and I'm trying to think, Mal Couch, I think, had a session. So all in all, there were a number of speakers, and it was one of the best conferences we've ever had in terms of, of, of good material. In fact, they uh, videoed all of it, and if those videos come out, you will see some of it. Because there was a friend of mine who I've known for a while, Dr. Joe Martin, who did two sessions on... Uh, Creation evolution. A friend of mine uh, brought his, uh, I don't know, I guess his son's nine or ten years of age, brought him to the sessions, and Job was his favorite. Favorite. I was pr- he, although I'm close to the family, I was probably his least favorite because I did two hours on detailed, erudite uh, uh, history of philosophy and was way over everybody's head. As was Charlie. Well, you can imagine that. I mean, one guy came up and said, Boy, I've heard both you and Charlie teach a lot, and I've never heard either one of you teach like you taught this, you know, today. I said, Well, that's because of the nature of the conference. But, um, incidentally, Charlie is going to be here, uh, Labor Day weekend over at North Stonington Bible Church. So make sure you put that on your calendars, and, uh, uh, we'll be going over there during the Labor Day weekend, except for Sunday morning. But it was a great conference. Uh, Joe Martin has done this, has a set of video, uh, videos I have, which we're probably going to give to use in the in uh, prep school downstairs. It's called Those Incredible Creatures, and he's done a fantastic job of showing, taking. Uh, he's got a third one that's about to come out, and he goes through all of these different animals and shows all the different uh, protective features that God has given them. 
to show how evolution would just be impossible uh, to take place. And they're great for kids. And so um, we'll get those videos. But he talks a lot about that. And I think that, that his, uh, his two sessions would be something that everybody here would benefit from. And he certainly addressed it from an area that, that I wouldn't address it from. His background is in science. He was, uh, he was a dentist. He was LBJ's dentist when he was in the Air Force. And um, he was uh, also a professor of dentistry at Baylor College of Medicine. And when he was giving a lecture on the evolution of the tooth, some of his students challenged him on the concept of evolution. And as a result of that, I believe he was uh, not only saved, but eventually uh, realized the errors in evolution. He has a uh, on a worldwide ministry, just an independent ministry on a number of different subjects. Also, John Morris's talks on the Noahic flood and on uh, the age of the earth, the age of the universe, and I can't remember what his third, third subject was, were also quite good, and I think everybody here would benefit from that. I heard him talk on the age of the universe three months ago at the uh, Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference, and he had all kinds of new information and new uh, changed the whole lecture up a lot. So every time I hear him, I learn a number of new things. So uh, a couple of times this winter when I'm gone, like, for example, when I'm over in Ukraine in January, those will be great things to show on, on Wednesday night. So you will see some of it. But it was a great conference, and I enjoyed not only the fact of the what we learned from the from the presentations themselves, but also the times that we had just uh, sitting around and talking a couple of nights. We got to go out uh, with several people, and usually it was Charlie and Tommy and a couple of other guys and, and myself, and we just get to get in depth and talk about a lot of recent things that are going on, recent studies, new things that are coming out from ICR, and um, John Morris, has a, he's, he's a real upbeat guy. And about every five minutes he says, you know, it's just a great time to be a Christian, to be a, to be a Bible-believing Christian and a creationist, because we're winning. I mean, some of the stuff that ICR has worked out and is going to be publishing in the next two or three years is going to be absolutely mind-blowing. They've got a study that I'm, I've got the book at home, but I have not, I'm just not a technical scientist to be able to work my way through a lot of it. And I encouraged uh, John to publish a in their Acts and Facts letters, uh, to, to publish a simplified breakdown of these conclusions so that uh, people like me can understand the, uh, the significance of this. And they've had a commission that's been working for about 10 years. And remember, most of these guys are doing this out of their own pocket money. In some cases, there are people who contribute, but they, they don't get any federal funding for these kinds of studies. And it's, it was called the... Uh, Rate Commission, and I forget what R-A-T-E stood for, but it was a study of uh, dating systems. And are these uh, radiometric dating systems really valid and accurate? So if any of you guys have any background in physics or engineering, uh, this is something you'll probably get a lot out of. Um, but some of the studies that they came up with, are mind-blowing, and they've published three papers so far in the standard scientific journals that have challenged the assumptions of these dating methods, and it has just blown people away. The articles actually got published, 
And it, the, if people pay attention to it, it will revolutionize the whole concept of how you date things. When one of the things that I remember that they did was they dated coal. And uh, you know how to date coal? You ask it out. Oh. You saw that coming. Uh, they, they and, and nobody had ever done this before. The assumption is that, that coal is a fossil fuel and it's just been around for 25 million, 30 million years. So they actually had it dated. It dated to be just several thousand years old. And that's just things like that completely go against the whole theory of evolution and you never see these things get published. And so those were, were really, really done well. Uh, and so they've got a lot of conclusions, many different things that they're getting ready to publish that uh, just have, will have a profound impact. So it was a great conference. And uh, I know that during the year when you see some of these videos, you will enjoy them. Okay, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5. Now, as is typical, as I read over 1 Corinthians chapter 16 two or three times in the last couple of weeks, or actually many more times than that, in preparation for teaching it, I thought, well, this kind of hits the surface. It's Paul giving his little travel itinerary, a few other little simple things as he says goodbye. We'll probably run our way through there in about a week or so. Well, scratch that idea. There's some underlying stuff that goes on, especially in the first... 12, in these first seven verses from 5 through 12, there's an undergirding doctrine here that is something that we need to address, so it's going to take a couple of times to address it. But before we can get into the nuts and bolts of the doctrine of of decision-making and the will of God, we have to first understand what's going on in the text, because this isn't a doctrine that just jumps out from you in the text. But as you re- as we read through this, we're going to see that Paul has a lot of decisions he has to make due to certain circumstances and situations that are arising and changing uh, in terms of the, the, the circumstances at Corinth. And how does he make these decisions? So let's just, uh, I want to just summarize, sum, do a summary read of these verses to give us that overview orientation, and then we'll get into it. He says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. And if if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of of the Lord as I also. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, But he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Now, what undergirds this is the whole concept of decision-making. Paul's got a problem he's been dealing with in this whole epistle with the Corinthian believers, and he's been facing a number of problems, not the least of which is the problem of his own authority in relation to that church. 
And so he has uh, uh, answered their questions, and now he has other decisions to make. And as we go through life, we too are faced with numerous decisions. Some of these decisions appear to be rather inconsequential decisions, and some are actually are inconsequential decisions. They have no impact. You get up in the morning, you decide, hmm, I'm going to put on a blue shirt or a red shirt today. How am I going to dress today? What shoes am I going to wear? Am I going to put my shoes on left foot first or right foot first? I mean, these decisions have no uh, real significance, or so we think. But there are other times when we go through life and we make in what appear to be inconsequential decisions, and yet something happens and it turns out they're consequential decisions. We may decide one morning to get up and drive the normal route to work, and we get caught in bad traffic, or we get caught in a traffic accident, and or we get involved in a traffic accident. It may change many things about our life. Other times we may decide to get up in the morning and, well, I'm just not going to go a certain way to work today. And we go another route, and we find out that there was a, a major problem the other way, and we could have been involved in it. And in that, we, we see the hand of the sovereignty of God. But sometimes people, because we have a tendency to be mystical, will say, oh, God must have been speaking to me this morning. Well, did you hear his voice? Could you have recorded it with a tape recorder? No, I don't think so. But you're right. God was guiding you, but God wasn't speaking to you. So there is, there is that. God works in and through our circumstances and leads us in, in many different ways. And a lot of things like that, a lot of inconsequential things happen in life that turn out later on to be uh, very consequential. It was uh, interesting for me personally at this conference this last week because in my my introduction I noticed that, that there was a family at the back that had come up from Houston. And I there were four kids in that family, three kids in that family, and the oldest was a girl who was a couple of years younger than me. And I didn't really remember her. You know, you don't remember kids that are a couple of years younger than you uh, when you're growing up. You remember the older kids, but not necessarily the younger ones. And um, we had grown up at church together and also going to, the whole family was involved with this Christian camp where I had grown up and also worked. And one day in 1974, by then we were in college, I went by the Campanile headquarters in Houston, and she was in from out of town in college. He was going to school up at Texas Tech up in Lubbock and going to Lubbock Bible Church, which was where Charlie Clough was pastoring. And I, I saw her, and I said, where are you going to church? She said, well, I'm going to Charlie's church. I said, really? How's he doing? Great. i got a bunch of tapes of his here. Here, have some. You know, and that has really changed and impacted my life ever since. I mean, that was just one of those things where I was driving through, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to go by there and see who's hanging around today. It was an inconsequential decision that had long-term consequences. And uh, I talked about that in my introduction and how uh, it was interesting. I, didn't, I may have seen her briefly two or three times since then, but I really didn't see her again to, to, to speak to her until last year. She, came, she and her mother came to this conference a year ago, and, um, and Charlie was speaking there. So that was interesting. And then um, what was also kind of just on a side note interesting for this thing, I mentioned that uh, I had gotten involved in the creationist movement due to the fact that one of the counselors at Campanile always taught a creation-evolution Bible study on what we call the uh, trail camps or adventure camps, where we would go out for five days on a canoe trip 
or backpacking trip, things like that. And Mike Turnage always taught a uh, Bible class on creation and evolution. He was a biology teacher, and that was that really got me started. He insisted that I read the Genesis flood when I was in the tenth grade. And I didn't realize when I was talking about him, because he died of a, br- of a brain tumor back in 76, I think. But his daughter was sitting out there in the audience. So it was uh, kind of old home week this last week. But you never know what impact some decisions would make. And then other times, we know we're facing momentous and weighty decisions. Decisions about school, decisions about career, decisions about marriage. And trust me. Who you decide to go out with on a date, for those of you who are single, will almost always fit that inconsequential but maybe momentous category. And the, the, the lesson you learn from that is treat every person you go out with on a date as consequential. Because you never know. I have seen so many people go out with somebody who's not a believer... And first thing you know, they like this person. There's a tremendous affinity there. And next thing you know, they're involved in an emotional relationship that they don't want to get out of. And now it's with an unbeliever. Or it's with somebody who's a believer and screwed up. So your first priority needs to be to ask people, are you a believer and how important is that in your life? And if it's not very important, or if they're not a believer, if they're not a believer, witness to them. Really mess up their lives by the decisions they make, thinking that going out on a date with somebody was basically an inconsequential decision. Next thing you knew, they're married to some some man or woman who is not uh, positive to the Word, and it becomes a tremendous struggle. And let me tell you, just like water runs downhill, negative volition tends to always eat up positive volition. And the next thing you know... Uh, you're not going to church because, you know, your spouse always wants to do one thing or the other, and that becomes a problem. So we have to many decisions in life that we make. Some don't appear to be very important, and they turn out to be. Others we know are important. Well, how do we make these decisions? And within Christianity, there are two basic approaches to the will of God, and I will sort of... Uh, exaggerate the two of them. One takes the idea that every decision you make in life, whether you use Crest or Colgate, whether you use whether you eat beef or pork, whether you wear blue shirts or red shirts, depend is related to the will of God, and so you better pray about every single decision. And if God has a geographical will for your life, that to follow that to its logical conclusion, then at 845 on Monday morning, his geographical will may be for you to be in, in Preston and not in Norwich. And if you got up that morning and drove to work by way of Norwich, then you are out of the will of God. If you got involved in a wreck, then while it's your own fault, it's divine discipline. You should have been going the other way and driving through Preston. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but that's really where that mentality goes and that position goes when you emphasize that. The other view is, and I think it can be taken to an extreme as well, that is what is called the wisdom position. 
And that is that in the church age, God never has a specific geographical will for your life, never has a specific uh, uh, will for you in any decision. Every decision is merely a test of how you're going to apply doctrine, and your life is going to be a product of the decisions you make, and, um, and God is allowing you com- complete free reign to do uh, to, and to make any decision. Now, there's a lot of truth in that position but it can be taken to the extreme as well. So that's the framework. Now, how does Paul make decisions? He's faced with a crisis situation with the congregation over in Corinth. Now, probably would take seven or eight days, maybe a little more at that time, to sail from Ephesus over to Corinth. Let's put a map up here. We're going to see a lot of different things today. I've got three different PowerPoint slides working, so we have to figure out which one to use. Okay. There's our map of the Aegean. We can see that pretty well. Paul is over here on the western shore of Turkey at Ephesus. And he would sail from Ephesus back across the Aegean to Corinth, which is located right here at the Isthmus of Corinth, which connects the uh, Peloponnese, which is this lower peninsula in Greece, with uh, the mainland of Greece. Athens is located about where that arrow is. So this is, um, or actually it's right where that black dot is there. That's Athens. That's where the Olympics, well actually the Olympics are going to be held in five different locations in Greece, uh, including Olympus, which is over here kind of below the sea in Corinth. But that's, uh, that's our orientation. So Paul would have to scoot back over here, and that's going to take him probably a week or ten days to just get over there, and then he would have to be there for a while and come back. So that would take a month or two months out of his work schedule in Ephesus and accomplishing what he's trying to do there. So right now, at the time of his writing of 1 Corinthians 16, it's not his plan to go over to Corinth. And he says that he will come to them, he wants to come to them, despite the fact that they're antagonistic to him, they've challenged his authority, they have uh, their problems with divisions there, Um, he will still come. See, Paul had a love-hate relationship with the Corinthians. Paul loved the Corinthians, and they hated him. (laughs) Paul, uh, uh, not all of them did, but many of them had rejected his authority. Some were there that were maligning him. Others were spreading divisive rumors about him. And a result of this is that divisions had developed, and some of these were based on personalities. This is a basic problem that many people, many Christians have. I mean, we're just people, and we tend to be attracted by different types of personalities. And pastors come in all manner of different personalities. And one of the things I, I find interesting is that... Um, most of you probably don't hang with too many pastors. I mean, you've had, if you've been around here for a while, you spend a little time with Ron, and you've seen me, and every now and then somebody drifts through here, like Dan or Charlie Clough or someone else. And so you see that there are uh, different personalities and that the Word of God can be taught well through many different personalities. One of the reasons I like to bring different people in and expose you to different teachers is for that reason. Otherwise, what happens is, is uh, I think this is just a trend of the sin nature, people tend to think that one and only one personality type can teach the Word. 
And they want it, and if they listen to that for a long period of time, 10, 15, 20 years or more, then it becomes very difficult for them when the Lord moves that pastor on for them to find somebody else. What they end up trying to do is imitate the previous personality as opposed to the doctrine. And we all understand that it's the message, not the man. But usually when I hear people start emphasizing it's the message, not the man, hidden away somewhere people are emphasizing the man and not the message. Believe me, we all tend to do that. But God has made all kinds of different pastors. Some are introverts. Some are extroverts. Some have a uh, a hyper-personality. Some don't have a hyper-personality. Some are fat. Some are skinny. Some are uh, athletic. Some are not athletic. Some are more cerebral. Some are less cerebral. But uh, God uses each and every one of them. And the issue is always what do they teach as well as having their life back it up in terms of the qualifications of First Timothy ch- chapter, First uh, Timothy chapter three. But what happens in carnality and in immaturity is people want certain kinds of personalities, and they tend to identify the gift of pastor teacher with a certain personality type. And if somebody fits their preconceived notion of that personality, then they'll say, "Well, he's just." Such a great pastor. He has a pastor's heart. Well, the pastor's heart is that he cares enough about you to teach you how to think so that you can face problems on your own. And usually the people who I hear say that he's got a pastor's heart, you know he doesn't. He's down there teaching you how to be dependent on him. And he's at the hospital holding your hand. And when you lose your job, he's the first one over there to take care of you. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, see, I'm not always going to be able to do that, and many times I can't. I may be out of town. I may be somebody where else. I may be holding somebody else's hand. I mean, you never know. And a pastor is limited. But if a pastor teaches you how to think about life and how to problem solve and how to make decisions, then that's what gets you through the hard times in life is the doctrine that's in your soul, not that this individual is going to show up and uh, read a couple of passages of Scripture to you, pray for you, and then go on. That may make you feel good at the time, but when when you're in that hospital and you've been, you've been uh, laid up through an automobile accident or something, or you just lost your job and you're probably going to have the house foreclosed on and all your credit cards yanked and everything else, you don't know what to do. Five minutes after I'm gone, that's when it matters. Either the doctrine is going to kick in and you're going to survive or you're going to fall apart. And my presence or another pastor's presence for five or ten minutes may be slightly encouraging, but let's face it, we all know that the real issue when we get in the bed at night and close our eyes and all the uh, ghosts and goblins come popping out, that what really matters is what's in our soul, not some hymns that we sang and not what somebody said to us, now that can be used by the Lord, and is, in terms of just reminding us of some basic principles, and I'm not diminishing that, but that's not the focus. The pastor demonstrates his love for the congregation by teaching them in depth the Word of God so that they can face and handle problems and crises in life when he's not around and when no one else is around. Now, Paul had a real problem here with these Corinthians. We looked at uh, earlier. We saw the division in first, that's expressed in First Corinthians one twelve and following. 
But Paul also addresses this problem in 1 Corinthians 4, 18 to 21. So you can just hold your place here in chapter 16, and let's just flip back a couple of pages to chapter 4. In 4.17, let's just back up a verse. In 4.17 we're told, or Paul says, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you. Now, one of the major issues in understanding the verses that we're studying in 1 Corinthians 16 has to do with chronology. So if you're taking notes, you need to write some of these things down so you can keep the chronology straight. He has already sent Timothy. So he's going to talk about this in chapter 16. He's already sent Timothy, but Timothy hasn't arrived yet. And in verse 17, he said, I've sent, For this reason I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So they're probably not going to like Timothy because he represents Paul. Now some of you are puffed up. Actually, he says some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. See, they're hostile to Paul. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. Now, there's an important phrase, and he uses that phrase again in verse 16. He is making plans. He doesn't have any direction from God. God hasn't said, okay, Paul, it's my will for you to go back to Corinth in three months. See, Paul is like has faced with the same situation here that you and I are faced with, and that is that God's not giving us any direct divine guidance on most decisions. And so we, we have to pray about it, we have to apply doctrine, we have to understand what the principles are, and then we make a wise decision. That is part of what I refer to as the wisdom model of decision making. And in there, the basic underscore, under, underlying attitude is, I will make this decision if the Lord wills, if the Lord allows me to carry it out, recognizing that sometimes we may, we may go through the whole decision making process, and choose option B, and God then says, okay, the test was how would you make the decision, but I don't want you to go through door three or option three. I'm shutting that door, and you're going to have to be, that will force you to take option option two, which is where I wanted you all along, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to make go through the test, the decision-making process. So we always make decisions if the Lord wills. I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. That is, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod, that is, in discipline, or in love and a spirit of gentleness? So Paul is getting ready to come, and um, and he wants to know whether he needs to come and uh, exercise strong authority, or whether they will have uh, truly repented, that is, changed their mind about their behavior, and apply doctrine. Okay, back to chapter chapter 16. He says, now I will come to you. See, in 17 he said, I'll come to you shortly. But now he's made, he's, he's solidifying his plans. He says, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. And he says, for I am passing through Macedonia. In other words, this is the plan I have now. I'm currently in Ephesus. But my plan is to leave here and go to Macedonia and then down and revisit all the churches in Achaia, that's the lower part of Greece. See, let's put our map back up here on the overhead. Macedonia, you have uh, three major regions in Greece. Thrace is this area to the, to the east. 
that goes up to the Bosporus and the Dardanelles. Then to the west of Thrace, you have Macedonia, the towns that Paul visits on his second and third missionary journeys, Neapolis, where the port is, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, are all in Macedonia. That's the northern part of Greece. Then as you head south, this southern part of Greece, where Athens is located, where Delphi is located, uh, where Corinth is located in the Peloponnese, that is all part of Achaia. That's the region of Greece known as Achaia. So these are your three regions, Thrace, uh, Macedonia, and Achaia. So Paul's idea is he's going to head back up here, retrace his steps down through Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, and on down, and then end up in Corinth, and that uh, if things went the way he planned, he would arrive there at the onset of winter, and then winter in Corinth while the weather was too rough to travel. This is what he says in verse 6. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. Now, there are some, there are some interesting dynamics going on here, and I want to come back to verse 6 and 7, but first I want to talk about his present situation in Ephesus. He says, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. In other words, I'm going to stay here until Pentecost. Now, Pentecost occurs 50 days after uh, Passover. And that Passover usually occurs sometime. It's determined by the new moon. And it, it occurs sometime in uh, March or April. So Pentecost is usually the latter part of June or the uh, latter part of May or the first part of June. And he's merely using that as a calendar reference. He's, he wants to wait until uh, early summer before he gets out on the uh, um, uh, starts making his travel. He wants the weather to warm up. He's walking nearly everywhere he's going, and he wants to make sure he gets into the uh, late spring when the weather is going to be more conducive to travel, and he's out of the rainy season. So he's talking about Pentecost. Not as a, it doesn't have anything to do with the religious influence or the religious. Uh, aspect of Pentecost from Old Testament ritual calendar, and he's not even uh, using it in a in a sense that he's honoring Pentecost as the birthday of the church for the church age. It's just a calendar saying, well, I'll come after Memorial Day. And people talk about that because in most places in the country, Memorial Day ends the school year, but not in New England. But the rest of the world, they get out of school early. Of course, they start up early, too. Places like in Texas, they're starting up the first week of August. When I was a kid, we didn't start till September, but that's because they get out like the third week of May. But down there, see, May stills a little bit. We're talking 85, not 90. It's a little bit cooler than, than August. So anyway, that's how he's using his reference to Pentecost. But notice the phrase there. It is the present active indicative of, of the Greek verb thelo, T-H-E-L-O. And thelo means is an assertion of will. He's making a decision. This is what I have decided to do. Now, Paul, on what basis have you made this decision to stay in Ephesus? Did God speak to you? Did God, um, uh, did you put out the fleece? 
Did God give you some kind of direction? No, he is simply making a wisdom decision. He knows that he has a ministry that he wants to fulfill certain objectives in in Ephesus, but he also understands the dynamics of travel and what's involved in travel. He wants to wait till the till he's out of the rainy season and into the dry season, and then he wants to make sure his journey concludes in Corinth before the onset of winter so that he can then winter in Corinth. See, he's making these decisions based on what we might call just common sense principles, but the problem is most people don't have common sense. Um, it's just wisdom principles what related to safe travel and being able to accomplish in the most efficient manner the things that he intends to do. But one of the reasons he wants to continue to stay in in Ephesus, is given in verse 9. He says, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and, uh, and there are, uh, are literally, but there are many ad- adversaries. And this is described in Ephesians chapter 19. This great and effective door is a metaphor. Metaphor is a figure of speech. There's not a literal door there, but it is an opening. And that is how he's using this phrase as a metaphor, that there is an effective opening for him. In other words, there's great opportunity to uh, spread the gospel there in Ephesus, but nevertheless, there there are some great adversaries, there's some difficulty. So doing the will of God is not without its opposition. So let's turn back and pick up some background in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. This gives us Paul's stay in Ephesus. Now, this occurs on his third missionary journey. So let's switch our slide over here to Paul's third missionary journey. Paul's second missionary journey took place. We'll go back and discuss it a little more next time when it comes to uh, God's will. Maybe we'll just go there now. I don't know if I have. Paul goes out on his second missionary journey. Let's go back to chapter 16. He left Antioch. They were commissioned to go back to the churches they had planted on the first missionary journey. And Paul does not want to take John Mark with him. Now, once again, there's a decision he has to make. Now, we're not sure. The text doesn't indicate whether this was right or wrong. But Mark had bailed on him when they were in Cyprus. And Barnabas, who had accompanied Paul on the first missionary journey, was determined to take Paul, uh, take with them John, also called Mark. That's in chapter 15, verse 37. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. See, Paul isn't saying, okay, Lord, what's your will here? Paul is just applying doctrine to the situation. Mark bailed on him. He needs somebody reliable. So Paul says, in his view... I'm not taking Paul. That is not the best thing for me and my ministry. I'm not going. So Barnabas says, well, I want Mark to go. I see a lot of potential in Mark, but obviously you think he's going to slow you down. So instead of me going with you, Paul, I'll take Mark. We'll go back to Cyprus and you go do your thing. See, it's not a matter necessarily of right or wrong. And so a lot of times we get into situations where somebody wants to do one thing and another person wants to do another, and we want to polarize the situation and say, you're right and I'm wrong, or you're, you're right and, and the other guy's wrong. But here we see that Paul and Barnabas agreed that, okay, for the best part, it's not a wise decision for Mark to go with Paul, 
uh, he would just hold Paul back. So Barnabas and Mark go their way. And Paul looks over the congregation there and takes Silas, also known by his Latin name Silvanus. Paul chose Silas and departed, and they were commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is the area in south-central Turkey where he had gone on the first trip. This is where he picks up Timothy. That's the first part of the the next chapter. And note down in verse 6. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia... Now, let's see if I've got this up here on this other map where we just just were. Okay, Phrygia is just off here on the edge of the map. See it? That's where you see the PHR over here in the right. It's part of the central highlands of, uh, of Turkey. And Galatia is just to the uh, west of Phrygia. So he's traveling from... Uh, are just to the east, uh, Galatia is just to the east of Phrygia. So he's traveling from the east to the west. He goes through Galatia and then Phrygia, and now he's coming into the Roman province of Asia, right here, this westernmost province, the one we've been studying in Revelation, that um, where the seven churches are later established that are at the beginning of Revelation. And notice what verse 6 says. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, you see, up to this point, they've been making decisions in what I would call as the wisdom framework of decision-making. Should I take John Mark or no, or not? No, I won't. What, which way should I go? Should I go to Lydia? Should I go to uh, Lister List first or Derby or Iconium? How should I go? Should I take Timothy with me? Yeah, that seems like a good idea. There's no direct divine guidance. But all of a sudden, they get into this province of Asia, and there's direct divine guidance. See, God does not always have a specific thing for you to do in terms of geographical will, but sometimes He does. And when He does, God's going to make it clear to you. And even if you choose door three and God wants you to go through door one, trust me, you'll go through door one. God doesn't play some sort of hidden shell game with you where you have to guess about where He really wants you. And even if the choice that you make is somehow prevented by... Uh, other people, if that's where God wants you, you'll eventually get there. That's what happens with Paul at times. So, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mycenae, see, Mycenae is the, this territory just north of Asia, just below the Bosphorus. Okay, he comes to Mycenae. They tried to go into Bithynia. See, he's, gonna, he's headed north to Mycenae from Asia, and now he's going to head north uh, west and per, or northeast, and perhaps have a little vacation on the shore of the Black Sea up in Bithynia. And again, the Spirit did not permit them. God clearly, and we don't know how the Holy Spirit communicated this, whether it was through verbal communication, which was still operational at that time, or whether it was through circumstances. But it was clear that He wasn't to witness or do anything in Asia. Now we think, well, Lord, that seems kind of odd. Why wouldn't you want me to teach the gospel? I mean, that's why I'm commissioned. And, and we'll see why in a minute. It has to do with timing. But the Holy Spirit made it clear it wasn't the time, and he, they weren't to do anything in Asia or in Bithynia. So passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas. Troas is located right here at the, uh, at the Dardanelles, at the entrance to the Dardanelles, not far from where the site of ancient Troy. Uh, they're not the same place. Troy is south of Troas. But they came to Troas, and um, 
And at, at night, Paul had a vision. Verse 9, a man of Macedonia, or Macedonia as they pronounce it, stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So this is God's revealing what his will is. So it's very clear now the direction God wants them to go. God had a specific geographical will, and that was Europe. Notice how specific Europe is. Go to Europe. Where? Well, wherever. See, this is where wisdom operates within the framework of, uh, of a specific will. God isn't really saying, uh, he's saying come to Macedonia, but he's not saying where. And we see this sometimes, that there's a general area where God may want you to be, but how you operate within that general area is determined by your own decision-making and your own uh, application of doctrine. Okay, so they go to, he, he went there on his second missionary journey. Now let me show you a little bit about what that's like. Well, he came from Ephesus later on. I have this start in Ephesus. This is what Ephesus is like. This is where uh, Paul was when they, when he's writing to the Corinthians. And this area off in the distance, see where down here where it's flat and it looks like there, there's a road there. That's the highway. But off here to the left is where the harbor used to come in. That's where... Uh, because uh, Ephesus during Paul's time was a major port. Now it's 30 miles from the Black Sea. Of course, our guy told us that was due to global warming. Now remember, if it was warming, the water level would be going up, not down. So, See, America's screwing up the rest of the world. But this is looking down. I'm about a, a, at least halfway through Ephesus at this point, looking down on uh, the, what was the major street, and it was lined by homes and shops all along this major street, and then it opens up into a, the agora down here, and this facade that's left here was the library of Celsus. Celsus was a famous Gnostic that was an opponent of John's later on when John was in Ephesus. So this looks at a um, picture of Ephesus. This is one of the... Uh, Various statues that lines the the road, the roadway. Many of them are uh, misshapen, but in, when in its heyday, these statues would have been painted, flesh tones for flesh. The robes would have been painted. It would have been uh, very very colorful and very beautiful. This is another um, facade and and architecture. And I'm, and if you look right here through the middle, we see this archway here. And that is the next slide. And there you have uh, Medusa carved into that archway. See, this is a point I'm making. Everywhere you went, you were faced with this kind of statuary or artwork that came out of the paganism of Greece. You couldn't escape it. It's a hundred times worse than what we face in our pagan society today, although we're running there as fast as we can. But this, this is just one example, and you'd ha- have all kinds of different examples. I've got some pictures that I haven't pulled together yet on, on some of that. This, again, is the, the uh, Library of Celsus. And interesting, this little, apparently this, our, our guy told us that this uh, hole here lay, leads to a passageway and came up on the other side of the street in a brothel. So the men would, um, 
would tell their wives, I'm going to go to the library. And they had something else on their mind. It was funny, you know, when you travel with a bunch of Southern Baptists, the half, half the women on there said, we didn't need to know that. That's just, that's just terrible. Why does he have to talk about that? It's reality, lady. Come on. That's what paganism does. Okay, here we are in the great, um, this is the, the, the great theater in Ephesus, and you can see how, how large it is. It would seat, um, I think 60 or 70,000. And perfect acoustics, I stood in the middle, and I had uh, Pam go up to the very top, up there in the nosebleed section, and I just talked without benefit of a microphone. I just talked in a normal voice as if I was talking to the person next to me, and she could hear every word up on top. So they had tremendous, uh, tremendous architectural skills. Here's a, another view of the theater from a distance. You can see what that, what that was like. Apparently have, let me see. Okay, there. Some of these are out of order, so let me skip through. Here we go. This is Neapolis, modern Kavala, and this is the port that Paul would have sailed into on both journeys, both his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey. And uh, beautiful overlooking the Aegean would have taken him about four or five days to sail there from Troas. And the first place he went was uh, Philippi, which they pronounced Philippi. And he came to Philippi, and we're told in chapter 16 that when he arrived, he looked for... There weren't enough Jews there to have a synagogue. And so on the Sabbath day, he went uh, out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made because the Jews understood the ritual principle of cleansing. So they went out there to pray, and they would pray by the water because they could go through their ritual washing just like we go through a confession before um, we pray. And this was the river. This was the area where uh, Lydia was, was baptized in Acts chapter 16. Very uh, beautiful little setting there. And just above Philippi, there was the high place. This, every city has an Acropolis. When you hear the Acropolis of Athens, you think of, or when you hear the word Acropolis, you automatically think of the Acropolis in Athens with the Parthenon. But every city had a, every town had a high place. Had the, that's what it means. Acro means high, the high city. And I think that the reason you have people building things on high places, worshiping gods on high places, building cities on high places, probably goes back to some sort of uh, fear of the flood, that they wanted to put things on the highest ground possible so that they uh, would survive. This go- and, and by, of course, by the time they built Philippi, the reason for building high places had probably been lost, but it probably originated not long after the flood. Same idea of building the Tower of Babel. Now, this looks down on the uh, Agora in Philippi. This is the area where Paul and Silas cast out the demon from the gypsy girl, from the fortune-telling girl. And as a result of that, they were thrown into prison. And archaeologists say this is the prison where Paul and Silas were, uh, that, where they had been thrown. Now, it didn't, wasn't open like that back in those days. It was closed in, and uh, it was a secure jail. And then this is the major uh, theater that they have there in Philippi, and you can see the overall setting in that particular uh, picture. 
this is a shot I took from the bus looking down off the edge of the highway. And if you can just, you can barely see this cobblestone walkway that runs right down through here. Does that show up? It's about f- five feet wide. And it's cobblestone. And that was the, that was the Ignatian way or the Ignatia Hadas. Uh, in Greek, the Ignatian Way, the Via Ignatia of the Romans, that was a major highway that linked Macedonia through Yugoslavia and then over to Italy. This was your major trade route. And it, it wasn't any wider than this pulpit up here, just wide enough for a chariot to bounce along. The Romans didn't have springs in their chariots so in uh, their, or their carriages, so you can imagine what a great journey that would have been. But Paul walked along it and and uh, usually a traveler would make 20 to 25 miles a day walking along those cobblestone roads. And this is the road in Berea. From uh, uh, He went from Philippi to Thessalonica and then to Berea. This is down in Berea. And Berea is where Paul taught them the word, and they searched the Scriptures daily to see that it was so. And so at the side of the old synagogue there, we have this Byzantine mosaic. Here's Paul teaching... Uh, uh, a crowd of listeners, and they're checking it out in the scroll. And I think he must have just told them that they were lost sinners because this woman back here looks really sad. <laughs> and then this is looking over the harbor of Thessaloniki. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of what all of this looks like. Now there's uh, looks like a, something you put in the post office. That's me with uh, uh, Tim LaHaye and Ed Heinsohn. Okay, so Paul, this is the, this is the area that Paul is going into. Now skip over to, uh, chapter 19. We'll just wrap up with this background today. When it comes to Athens, or excuse me, it comes to Ephesus. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Now this is at the beginning of his third missionary journey. He had founded the church in Ephesus, then he left, took the ship over to Ephesus for just a short visit, probably a day or two, and then he headed back to Jerusalem, made a report to the church in Antioch of Syria, and then he headed back through, um, then he headed back through um, Turkey. So here we have another map. So Paul's leaving Antioch, he went to uh, Tarsus, then to Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch of, of uh, Pisidian Antioch, and then he heads to Ephesus. And that's where we find him in Acts 19. Apollos at this time is pastoring that carnal crowd over in Corinth. And the first ten verses we learn about Paul's involvement there, and skip down to verse 8. When he first got there, he went into the synagogue, spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, the school of Tyrannus would have just been a meeting hall that was probably used most of the time, but they took a siesta... 
They're not Spanish, but they did take a, there, there is a tendency there to take the afternoon nap. And it was like when we were there in 114 degrees. It's no wonder they were taking their, the uh, nap in the middle of the afternoon. And that would be around lunchtime. There would be a three or four hour period when the building wasn't used. And that would have been the time that Paul would have utilized that, that building to teach. So he wasn't going in there and changing things up. He still had all the mosaics and statues and paintings on the wall depicting Zeus and Aphrodite and all the Greek gods and goddesses, but he taught the truth there. And this continued, verse 10, for two years, so that what? All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now what do you note there? About three years earlier, Paul went through that area and God said, don't speak to anybody in Asia. Why? It was too big of a task. Paul couldn't have done it. It would have slowed him down. God had something else for him to do. But it was a matter of timing. Now he's back in Ephesus. And what happens? He's teaching Bible classes. And as a result of this, the men that are coming, and the women as well, are getting the word and they're evangelizing others. And during this two-year period of time, the churches in Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea, Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, Sardis, all those churches that we talk about in at the first part of Revelation and others were all founded during this period of time. So he has a base of operations in Ephesus, and they're sending out teams doing evangelism and starting churches all over Asia. So it was a matter of timing. And God gave, closed the door at one point, but later on he, he opened the door. So when that comes back to the issue of decision-making in our lives, we have to recognize that sometimes some, we may re- truly want to do something, but God may be saying, no, nope, nope, the timing's not right. I have something else for you to do right now, and eventually you will get there. So Paul is now there during that period of time, he faces opposition, as we saw him mention in 1 Corinthians 16. And then skip over to uh, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, that has to do with the, the problems that were going on before. They, they burned uh, the books of witchcraft and divination that they had. Uh, he cast out demons from some. And when all of that was accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. What this is saying is Paul's in that decision-making planning process again, saying the same thing he says in 1 Corinthians 16. I'm going to leave here and go to Macedonia and Achaia. But he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. So that's what he refers to in 1 Corinthians 7. I've sent Timothy. But in 1 Corinthians 16, he knows Timothy hasn't arrived yet. So he says, but whenever Timothy does arrive. And then he faces opposition, verse 24. A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, had made silver shrines of Diana, that is Artemis. The Greek name was Artemis. She was the goddess and had a tremendous temple to her. There's only the foundations left. Tremendous temple to her in Ephesus. And uh, uh, the, the silversmiths, made these little statues of her, and, of course, that was the basis for their industry and their, their money. And Demetrius is the head of the union, and he calls them all together and says that, basically, we have to riot and stop all this teaching about Christianity because it's cutting into our profit margin. And so everybody got together, and they assembled in the theater. That's that huge theater I pointed out. They filled it up, and they had a riot. 
And, um, and so Paul's life was in danger. And we'll come back next time and, fig- and just wrap it up again and talk about it as a preface to uh, finishing up the doctrine of knowing the will of God. But this is what's going on in Paul's life. He knows he's got opposition, but he knows he has to stay there a little while longer before he can leave. Nevertheless, he's going to change his plans. We'll see this next time. He just got through saying in 1 Corinthians 16, I want to come to you uh, shortly, but I want to do it by way of Macedonia. But what happens is the crisis in Corinth is so bad, he does take a quick trip over to Corinth and comes It's not mentioned in Acts. It's not mentioned in Corinthians. But there's an allusion in 2 Corinthians to a quick trip to Corinth. It just exacerbates the problem, and things get worse. So we have to understand all the little dynamics and movements that are going on here before we can really analyze how Paul handles the whole situation. He does it with grace orientation and a relaxed mental attitude, all of which we still need to study in this, in this passage. We'll get there next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by these things, to understand how your, your will works, to be able to uh, more fully apply it in our lives, uh, both in terms of specific things that you may be guiding and directing us in, as well as just giving us opportunities to apply the doctrine in our own souls. Father, at this time we also pray for anyone here who may not be saved, who may be unsure or uncertain of their eternal uh, destiny, that they can take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. If you're here this morning and you don't know how to get to heaven, the answer is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, Father, we pray that you would just challenge us with the things that we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.